at which point it starts doing things that simply could not be done before. Applications, modalities, use cases that do not have analog in the traditional financial world. Hello and welcome. This is episode 439 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's show, we're going back to basics. While Bitcoin and digital bearer assets in general are an incredibly important technology for the internet in the future, the reason they're likely to be important, at least in the near term, has little to do with tokens and everything to do with the context surrounding them. The world we live in every day, where government-controlled money is abused for the benefit of the few and to the detriment of the many. Today's episode is sponsored by eToro.com. Let's Talk Bitcoin is owned by the hosts and is editorially independent, but you can find new episodes every Sunday on the Coindesk Podcast Network at coindesk.com, the LTB Network at letstalkbitcoin.com, and on our privately managed show-only subscriber feed at ltbshow.com. My name is Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode, we'll discuss that important surrounding context and Bitcoin's potential role in it. For this conversation, I'm joined by the other host of the show, Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Thanks to all of you for being here. And on behalf of all the hosts, we'd like to thank you, the listener, for sitting in on today's session. So to kick things off, we're going big picture. Even before the COVID-19 shutdowns, the stock market has been at or near record highs for years and years. In theory, that means the economy is doing great. And for some very small number of people, it is. But for most of us, this is not the best of times. Andreas, I'd like you to lead us off today. Who is the economy still working for and who is it not serving well at all anymore? I mean, as always, it's working very well for the rich and connected and income inequality is increasing at the most rapid pace that it has ever increased since the 1970s. There's a phenomenon here, which I think is very interesting, called the Cantillon effect. And it's named after uh, an 18th century economic philosopher, Richard Cantillon. And the Cantillon effect says that the expansion of money or the injection of money, the amount of money through a central bank is not distributed evenly. I think the best analogy is one that Friedrich von Hayek described, which is if you pour honey into a cup, it won't flow evenly. You'll get a little pile, a mound of honey in the center, a clump in the center of the cup, because that's where it's hitting first. And that effect in monetary terms is that when money flows into the economy through a central bank, the ones who are closest to the money get the biggest effect. It's not spread out evenly according to the Cattillon effect. And we're seeing this in such a huge way right now. Several trillion dollars pushed into the economy through bond repurchases that allowed corporations that were failing to not seek direct stimulus from the government, but instead be able to purchase bonds that were underwritten by the Fed equity purchases by the Fed, and of course, the enormous flow of money going to banks in an indirect way. So all of the paycheck protection program and economic injury, small business administration loans, all of those are managed by the banks. And by flowing that amount of money through the banks, it creates an enormous amount of stimulus and helps them kind of balance the books and gain enormous value. Eventually, some of it trickles down, but again, it doesn't trickle down evenly. Like, who among us has the access to accountants and lawyers to do all of the paperwork quickly enough to get a paycheck protection program or an economic injury disaster loan from the SBA? I do, and I did, but most people don't. So, as a result, the biggest businesses, the most well connected, those closest to the money are getting the lion's share of this distribution of money, and it's making economic inequality massively worse because of distortions introduced into the market. 
you're totally right. I mean, like there's this regulatory burden that kind of comes into play here. If money is tight and you have no revenue, then you have no money to hire the experts to help you to survive through this sort of situation. So that's something that, you know, happens within companies. And that's what we're talking about here. But it also is true on kind of an individual basis, right? Like the tax code on the one hand is supposedly very empowering and that it gives you all of these different ways that you can lower your tax burden. But it sort of all relies on you having somebody who you can pay money to in order to then save you money. But to save that money, you have to have the money in the first place in order to hire the person and pay them for their time. And that tends to be pretty expensive time as it goes. Right. And all of these minute differences, minute advantages, maybe I have a half percent advantage, a few days advantage. I applied for my PPP paycheck protection program two days earlier than everybody else. I literally applied the day the law passed and I had all of my paperwork ready. And that advantage, it's not a huge advantage, but it was enough to get me in the first round of loans that advantage. And then if you think about all of these minute advantages across the entire economy, they accumulate really, really fast. So the bigger and richer you are, the easier it is to add all of these advantages up and take the maximum opportunity. And then when you pour a lot of money through a system that has all of these tiny, tiny cumulative tilts, if you like, so the playing field is slightly tilted, but it's at every level, and then you pour a ton of money through that system, it really does concentrate that money into the hands of very, very few people. And that's exactly what we've seen now. It also makes it worse because, you know, you dry up liquidity for anyone who'd want to issue debt if they have to compete against this risk-free debt that the government's just trolling out in the trillions. This entire country, this entire experiment in civilization is founded on the idea that we have a ladder with rungs on it and a reset button. And so you fall down the ladder, you can hit the reset button, and you can start climbing back up it. And every time the government massively overcorrects or does these disproportionate ways to give money out into the ecosystem, they're pulling up a rung from the ladder from someone to be able to climb up to be able to stop someone from being able to hit the reset button. Like, God forbid there's a turn in the economy. God forbid maybe some of the larger institutions that have more to fall fail. And then it's a phenomenal buying opportunity for all the smaller guys to be able to succeed within. The way that you solve a problem is by raising the rungs on the ladder and then letting those who are not have failure and not let them press the reset button. That's when you kill the economy and that's when the American experiment fails. Yeah. Capitalism without the risk of failure isn't. Because one of the most exceptional economic things that America did was this idea of bankruptcy. This idea that you could just fail and that your family wouldn't in perpetuity be debt slaves to try to repay it. This idea of a serial entrepreneur was kind of invented here because the economic concept of a reset button almost exclusively existed here. And what we're seeing is the death of the reset button. And the way that they're accomplishing that is by pulling up the rungs of the ladder. So it's a failure on two sides at the same time. But it's not the death of the reset button for everyone, because on the other hand, it's become harder and harder and harder to discharge debts in bankruptcy by classifying all kinds of debts as undischargeable. Like student loans, right? Exactly. Like student loans, which are one of the big problems. But then even the other legislation that forces people into Chapter 13 instead of Chapter 7. Chapter 7 is wipe out everything. Chapter 13 is we'll put you on a repayment plan so that your family can be debt slaves for the rest of your life. What you guys are saying, it sounds like, is that 
you know, we're seeing this booming stock market, as Adam was pointing out at the beginning of the show, but this is not a sign of health of the economy in general. It's just because when you inject capital into a system, it's getting to people who basically don't really need it first, and they have nothing to do with it except put it into investments like the stock market. Is the stock market going up? And I know there's a joke that like the stock market isn't going up, the dollar's collapsing. But in the past three months, the price of ground beef went up two to 300%. Like bare necessities to live have double or tripled in price. Except for gas and oil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, what is reality versus what are the ways that we measure reality? We've certainly talked about this on the show before, but the reality of the situation is something that's actually very difficult for people to control, right? It's actually impossible for people to control because it's the reality that we all deal with. If things aren't going successfully, then that's felt by people who are kind of subject to that reality. But if we instead think about, okay, well, the way we're going to measure reality is through the official measures of inflation or by looking at the value of the stock market and how it's doing relative to history, then what we've seen is that rather than try and fix the problem in reality where it would actually help people, what's been done is we've just changed the way that we measure reality. Or in the case of the stock market, we literally are manipulating transparently the way that we measure reality. And then that measure is held up and says, see, look how good everything is going, right? Yeah, it's gaslighting on a massive scale. If we don't count no new cases, there are no new cases. If we don't count unemployed as the people who have dropped out of the economy altogether, there is no unemployment. If we don't count, it's not happening. Reality is fake news. It depends on what the definition of is is. <laughs> <laughs> if we don't count the price of food in how we measure inflation, then there's no inflation, right? But you still go to the store and you still have to pay those inflated prices. And I haven't seen 300% increases, but we've been noticing, you know, that just the cost of normal food that we've been buying, you know, for years and years, it's been going up for a while, but the rate of that increase has increased substantially. But if you look at official inflation measures, they're like, oh, we're doing great. We actually wish there was more inflation. I go to probably the cheapest grocery store within five blocks of me. And when this crisis was happening, I've just been buying some ground beef and freezing it every month. And so I have frozen ground beef from February, and it's literally three times less per pound wow. than the exact same product from the exact same store from the exact same category of food. This kind of brings us to our next question. What's wrong with money that makes alternatives like Bitcoin attractive? First, it's sort of funny, right? Because it's hard to tell a fish they're in water. <laughs> so if we're talking about basics, what is money? And that's a whole philosophical discussion, but a very easy way to describe money is it's the most liquidly bartered instrument in a community. And so barter is when you say, I'll take that pig for an ox. Liquid means it's the most traded or it has a lot of trading occurring with it. So we'll just find some abstract concept or some random object and we'll barter with it so often that then we'll apply the word money to it. And then there's sort of economies of scale with that to the point where it just becomes easier to join in with trading that nonsensical object than another nonsensical object because of its liquidity. And then you find that it's what we would call money. And then there are other ways to measure how good of a form of currency an instrument is. But technically, a money would be the most liquidly bartered instrument in a current environment or community. And so when you look at, you know, the desires or goals of people, A, America's 300 million people, and it's a pretty darn large island, you could have different clusters of people to which dollars may not be the most liquid form of instrument. Maybe there's another instrument that's as liquid. 
But, you know, I think the past hundred years economically has taught us that if everyone was okay with one option, there'd only be one flavor at Baskin Robbins and one flavor of tomato soup. And that's just not how the market works. And so I think that when we apply force to things and we allow the government monopolists to control, that doesn't change the reality of market incentives for differentiators or distinct value propositions. And I think that Bitcoin and other forms of currency provide distinct value propositions. It's just that anytime something takes off, the government tends to stample on it. And what's unique about Bitcoin is its decentralization. Stample? Is that like stomp and trample on it? (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Bitcoin has an exceedingly distinct value proposition. It's decentralized, so it can't be shut down. And just on the basis of it achieving its goals and being distinct, there will always be a market for that in the same way that there will always be a market for those freaks that like Rocky Road. (laughs) (laughs) I would look at it a bit differently, which is that if money is a tool, a technology in effect, and it's a technology of a linguistic abstraction for running markets in the form of a barter or high liquidity token, as you said, Jonathan. But if you think of it as a technological tool, tools behave depending on their architecture differently and can be applied differently. Money, because it's central to markets, which are central to the way we organize societies, is one of the most powerful technological tools that exist. If you then put the control of that technological tool in the hands of a monopolistic entity of any kind, whether that's Facebook Libra or it's the US dollar under the Federal Reserve or whatever else it is, what happens is that that tool can be used to exert power on the way society is governed and on the way resources are allocated in a non-transparent way that is not subject to political correction or adjustment by democratic means. And when you take a tool that's that powerful, you take it out of the oversight and control of democratic institutions, then it attracts the kind of sociopaths who want to control that lever of power, and they use it to distort the market in their favor. And that's the really dangerous aspect of money, because it's not simply neutral fuel for an economy, or some forms of it are not simply neutral fuel for the economy. I've talked about this in the past as Money is a system of control in addition to its function as a medium of exchange, a unit of account, and a store of value. And when it can be used more effectively as a system of control, then it starts losing its utility as a medium of exchange, a unit of account, and a store of value because its power as a system of control is so intoxicating and so overpowering that it erases all other uses of it. And that's exactly what we see. Centralized money is no longer offering useful signaling of value. It's not offering useful unit of account measurement. It's not serving as a good store of value and increasingly not as an open, free, highly liquid medium of exchange because its use as a system of control has overridden all those considerations. And, you know, it seems like the past hundred years and the statements made publicly now and in perpetuity are dollars will always go down and stocks will always go up. So there are fundamentally two types of Americans, those who have their life savings in dollars and those that have it in stocks. And the crazy things with stocks is unless you're part of the racket, every now and then they completely collapse. So even that's a rigged game. And so what I like about Bitcoin is it's a way to be a part of neither game. Like I don't get to insider trade like a congressman in order to make an ARB. And I also don't have all of my life savings stolen from me because that 3% 
raise that I get every year is entirely wiped out by money manipulation. We're going to keep rolling on this conversation. Stephanie, I'd like you to lead off on the next one. Why and how is Bitcoin disconnected from the current system? In some ways, it's not disconnected from the current system, but in some ways it is. And what I mean by that is that now, you know, Bitcoin has been around for a while or cryptocurrencies in general. And you're seeing just the awareness about them has grown a lot, of course. And the way that people talk about them is as another type of asset, just like stocks or ETFs or things like that. But we still have a little bit of a stigma attached to them, especially if you're not part of the investor class, I guess, where regular people or the little people using Bitcoin is kind of looked at still in a stigmatized way as like, what are you doing that for? What's wrong with the normal money? You must be some sort of political dissident or you must be some kind of weirdo or drug user or fill in the blank if you're interested in this technology. But for people who are part of the investor class, it's different. It's just like, oh, of course, it makes sense to invest in this. It's got these crazy return. It's the secret sauce in all of these funds. And, you know, we still see some disconnection of Bitcoin from the current system in the friction with the on-ramps and off-ramps from and to cryptocurrency between that and fiat money. But at the same time, we have major central banks talking about releasing digital versions of their state currencies. So I feel like there's some ways in which Bitcoin is very disconnected from the current system and outside of it, but there's some ways in which it's really integrating and the lines are being blurred quite a lot. It's been really interesting watching this whole thing because I think that what's happened is that the money of the world, right, the U.S. dollar has almost infected Bitcoin by nature of these kind of profligate markets taking place and then people taking some of those profits. And when I say people, I mean like hedge funds, investment funds, the kind of large investors out there who made their money in the current system and who have vastly increased their wealth as the current system has enabled them to do. And then taking that money and investing a little bit of it into Bitcoin, which then actually increases the correlation of Bitcoin since as the most liquid markets, if there's some sort of crash or collapse in the broader markets, well, the easiest thing to liquidate is going to pretty much be Bitcoin because the market's never closed. There's no circuit breakers, things like that. One of the things that I think is interesting about this topic is that in the not so distant past, the US dollar was tied to specific weights of gold. And that connection was actually a form of decentralization because in order to create new currency, you had to get some gold and you couldn't just create gold. So the reason why that link had to end was so that, as Jonathan and Andreas have been saying, the kind of control that's exerted through the dollar system could swell and could surpass what reality would otherwise allow. I would even go one further when it comes to how Bitcoin is both connected and disconnected. And it sort of leads into another topic that we wish to discuss, which is that when you vote just by the process of voting, you voted for that person. So you feel moral culpability for everything that then occurs. And then you both find yourself justifying its actions or doubling down in sort of a tribal notion. And I feel like when you get into the stock market, you know, if you have some Apple shares, all of a sudden you're a shareholder, you feel tribal culpability and a desire to defend the actions for what they do. And I think that the thing that's so weird about Bitcoin is that it's decentralized. And that, you know, I don't feel like I have to be culpable or justify the consequences of things that are occurring in the world by the fact that I have some Bitcoin, as I would if I voted for one president versus the other or was a Google shareholder and then was defending their policy that was making me money. And so I think one of the things that we were interested in talking about as well is how can something be political without being partisan? 
how can you affect politics without drawing a line in the sand saying this is my tribe and that's my tribe and i think that bitcoin does it in such an elegant way that just from an ethical standpoint it's where i feel like my money should be because it's not become or defend something that i don't agree with hmm, that's an interesting point so like if people hold a national currency like us dollars for example are they bought into the financial system that supports and upholds that currency? And are they defending the actions of the folks who set the interest rates and make monetary policy? In a very real way, you are directly funding the military industrial complex. And since that is more than 50% of the national budget, significantly more once you count all the things we don't usually count, then yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the big moral quandaries, which is that simply by being a citizen and therefore being a taxpayer, you are financing death on an industrial scale. Right. But without needing someone to go live in the woods and, you know, source their own food, there is a difference between what you can do because you're compelled to do it and what you can do when you're not compelled to do it. Yeah. There's a difference between, you know, not heeding to the government when they say they throw you in jail versus when you have the choice of what you wish to do with your funds then what do you do with it? Then how do you express your free speech? And, you know, the Supreme Court said money is free speech. <laughs> At least when it comes to political campaign contributions and corporations. <laughs> it's going to be hard to walk that one back. And I think that there's something intrinsic to Bitcoin that makes it both political and nonpartisan that I love and I think is unique in terms of places that you could stick your assets into. Yeah, I think one of the ways you know it's political and nonpartisan is the desperate attempt by a lot of people to gatekeep and label it as explicitly partisan or fulfilling only one political ideology and apply various purity tests to ensure that you have the correct idea of what Bitcoin is and isn't, which wouldn't really be necessary if it was overtly partisan. But because it's not, that layer has to be added on afterwards and it's added on with a lot of social pressure. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we see all different kinds and groups of people using cryptocurrencies for very, very different agendas or goals, and it really defies labels. There's a quote from a musician named Ben Folds that's it's where drugs and religion circle around and meet back on the other side. That's something that I've often thought about in the context of cryptocurrency, because when you talk to people who are involved and most passionate about this space, what you'll often find is that they are very political, or at least they have kind of very distinct political views, but they don't necessarily agree with each other. They can be on the extreme right, they can be on the extreme left, sort of in terms of thinking about the ways that you should solve those problems. But often what you'll find is that they agree on what the problems are at a fundamental level. The solutions that may be different, and I think this is true amongst our group too, you know, we don't all agree with each other politically, but we've all very, very much identified that the problems of this system are pretty common and pretty easy to identify once you actually realize the way the system works. Another aspect of this which is interesting is that because of its disruptive and innovative nature, Bitcoin really challenges the traditional political labels, meaning that you just mentioned left versus right, which of course is a classification that worked really well in the early 20th century to describe political affiliation. But, you know, a lot of people have tried to revamp that with two-dimensional charts and three-dimensional charts or whatever. The bottom line is that a lot of the labels and characterizations of our political systems are about 100 years lagging from current reality. 
Bitcoin as expressing this new completely global and borderless systems-based neutral aspect of money and trust is very, very difficult to pigeonhole into a 19th century political model. And it really shows how limited that political model is in expressing the nuances of a modern world. I think that as Andreas was talking about how many different, you know, accesses or dimensions could you add to politics, I would say that the one unifying force in Bitcoin is it doesn't matter how big you are, how old or established you are, how much money you have, your failures are yours and yours alone and you eat them and no one's there to help you. You know, you don't get to pull anyone else down with you as you drown. And corollary to that, it doesn't matter how small you are, you have every single right and permission that anyone else has, irrespective of how large they are, and the linear access to get more of that ability to express a voice. And I think that that's how you could be so distinctly political and yet nonpartisan, because every single person I've met from the sides of the traditional spectrum, it's not those of the power elite, but the regular folks, that all resonates with them. And I think that blockchain technologies uniquely embody in a way that when push comes to shove, they actually follow through on like no other system does financially. We'd like to thank eToro for sponsoring this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Why use eToro? eToro is a large, well-established U.S. regulated trading platform that has over a trillion dollars of trading volume on the platform per year. eToro offers powerful trading tools made simple. You can create a diverse crypto portfolio, get access to smart charts and analysis on every asset, and eToro also has social features and the opportunity to practice and learn with a virtual trading mode. eToro offers low spreads, no commissions, and no hidden fees. Why wait? Getting started takes just minutes at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. Crypto assets are volatile and trading them carries risk. Please trade responsibly. This has been a great conversation so far, turning our conversation just a little bit. Andreas, I'd like to start with you on this one. What's the value in the U.S. and Western Europe of these things we're doing and these technologies we're so passionate about compared to the value in less developed parts of the world? I think that there is value in both places, but it's pretty distinctly different. Without a doubt. And the fundamental difference is that if your political institutions kind of work, your financial institutions kind of work, your financial infrastructure kind of works, although it's killing your democracy slowly, but imperceptibly so, so you can live with it for a while. And you can tap and swipe and wave and pay and do all of these fancy things. And you have the freedom to engage in different currencies, et cetera, et cetera. Then a lot of the fundamental capabilities of Bitcoin really don't apply. They're not necessary in your life. And in fact, at that point, all of the quirky weirdness of Bitcoin simply is too much to bear. And why not just use PayPal or Venmo? Did I mention that it's gradually destroying and eroding your democracy, but at an imperceptible rate? And so for Western developed countries, what happens is that the interest in Bitcoin comes either from fringe ideologies and subcultures that are willing to take the extra step or suffer the extra burden for ideological reasons, or it comes from people who are interested in something that is distinctly different in order to diversify or spice up their investment portfolio. So they have disposable income, they're trying to invest it. A lot of the things they're trying to invest in are so highly correlated and chasing yield has become so difficult because all you're doing is you're buying the Fed put. 
no matter what you buy, you're buying the Fed put. And maybe Bitcoin is different in that way. So it's used as kind of the financial equivalent of cayenne pepper in a portfolio. <laughs> if you put too much, it will destroy your portfolio. But if you put just a touch, it spices things up. And so we're beginning to see a lot of investors using that as a way to add a bit of yield. Now, in the developing world, this is very different because if your political institutions, financial institutions and financial infrastructure do not work, and if in fact they are the mechanisms by which you and your family are trapped in a cycle of poverty, closed within a set of borders, trapped in a currency that's broken and have no escape, then this financial lifeboat looks very appealing. And the level of effort you are willing to undertake and the amount of bullshit and weirdness you're willing to overcome in order to learn this is much, much higher. And so we see these very, very distinct cultures emerging in Bitcoin based on the relative comfort you have in your financial life today. So just following up on that. When you were talking about that, it made me think about kind of the chicken egg analogy that we kind of often use. You know, it's like, which came first, chicken or the egg? I feel like maybe I can butcher this, no pun intended, and say that the chicken lives in the Western world and the egg lives elsewhere. Both of them have a problem, but it's almost the opposite problem, right? Without a doubt. But here's the other thing, which is that whether it's the chicken or the egg, it also depends what kind of recipe you're trying to make, right? And one of the things that's interesting about Bitcoin is that so far, the vast majority of the applications that we're seeing, not just in Bitcoin, but in the broader cryptocurrency space, are rehashes of existing financial instruments and financial concepts. They're slightly different, but they're more or less the same. You know, Bitcoin is a different type of checking account, but it's still a checking account. It's a different type of cash, but it's still kind of like cash. It's a different kind of online payment, but it's still kind of an online payment. In that case, of course, there isn't much you can do in a Western developed country with Bitcoin that you can't do with anything else. That's going to change. At some point, we go from skeuomorphic design, where we're replicating the past using a new tool, to the full actualization of this technology and its innovative features at which point it starts doing things that simply could not be done before. Applications, modalities, use cases that do not have analog in the traditional financial world. One of the areas for this is micropayments. The other one is liquid tradable, non-fungible tokens that represents various assets. These types of applications cannot be done with traditional finance. You can't do streaming money with traditional finance. You can't do micropayments. You can't do tokenized non-fungible tokens that are completely independent. And so when it comes to those applications, you might see in the Western world a different level of interest. At that point, people start thinking about what can I do with this that I can't do with anything else, at which point it's a unique differentiator. So following up on that, Jonathan, let's talk about speculation for a second. Obviously, speculation has been a huge part of kind of the adoption and use so far within sort of Bitcoin. But in some ways, it can be referred to as price discovery because it's this kind of new thing that started from effectively no value. And we're trying to figure out what is the value of this thing in real life. In your view, what role does speculation play kind of in the story and progression of Bitcoin? Well, a large one. 
it's sort of hard to unpack what one would consider speculation versus just, you know, selling or holding or saving. But I wish I had a more intelligent response to this one, but trading quite isn't my forte to this level. So I don't quite know if I would be the right one to talk on that. But I will say that the most culturally distinct thing about nearly anyone in crypto is that my entire life I was told that our generation was lazy and horrible because all we cared about was debt and we had no savings. And then interest rates went negative. I can never have a savings account. And it's illegal for me to invest in anything because I don't have a million dollars. The moment I find the first thing in my life that I said, you know what, maybe I'll make $10 an hour, buy some of this and hold on to it. I was then called a disgusting hoarder. And I don't like what the hell is wrong with me. <laughs> so did you stop listening to all the people who were saying that you were bad for various reasons after that? Well, I did that a long time before this, but yes. <laughs> And I just think that, you know, when it comes to speculation, yes, you see the most insane amount of day trading and trading and people who got kicked out of FINRA in the 80s who came back into crypto. But you also see an intense number of people who are fairly young who are saving and holding and going long. And that's a form of speculation, I think, that was culturally dying out and is very distinct in this community that we have such a young community that is so intent on speculating with savings. You know, we haven't talked about it on the show, but in the last couple of weeks in the kind of broader world, there's been this phenomenon called the Robin Hood rally, where we've seen effectively retail investors, mostly younger, mostly our similar age to most of us, who have kind of come in and started aggressively buying stocks because of, as Andrea said, the Fed put, right? Which is basically that if the market starts to go down, then the Fed is going to come in and rescue the market. And if the market goes up by itself, well, then no rescue is required. So that means heads you win, tails you don't lose, right? <laughs> Either way, you kind of win. Well, you do lose. The only way to lose is if you hold dollars. Exactly. But if you play the game, right? So long as you're in the market, then you're pretty much going to benefit from the fact that either the market goes up because it actually is going up or the market goes up because the Fed sees that the market is going down and then it intervenes in the market to make it go up. And what's been interesting to me about that is that the people who have been sort of chasing that tail remind me a lot of the ICO boom, where for a while there, like if you were taking kind of reasoned risks in the space and you had been watching it for a while, then the ICO boom seemed crazy because projects that had no reality behind them, nothing there at all, except for, you know, a name and a website were raising just insane amounts of money. And for a while, it felt like you couldn't lose. And so people would take gains from one crazy project and then they diversify into more crazy projects. And I kind of see the same thing happening in the stock market, maybe not today, but with this so-called Robin Hood rally, it feels very similar. And, you know, talking about the reasons behind speculation, sure, some people just want to make a ton of money. But the reality of it is, is that, Jonathan, as you said, this is actually a form of savings. And it's a form of savings that you didn't used to need to do because you could actually save money in like a bank and the bank would pay you 6% interest every year, right? So you earn a million dollars over the course of your life, you stick it in the bank, and you're pulling $60,000 out per year in interest. And that was enough to live off of. And that reality is completely gone now. It used to be called 363, which is that a bank would pay 3% to people who deposited in interest. It would lend out to commercial small businesses at 6%, and then they'd go golfing at 3 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> it was called the 363. And when we conflated investment banking with banking, that's when all of that ended. And so it's actually kind of funny as you see Bitcoin mature, how we reinvent different phases of the industry. Because when Celsius came back online, 
you see what they're lending out at. They're lending out at like, you know, six, seven percent. They're paying the savers two to three percent. And they're just sort of letting the thing ride. And they're like, look how crazy this is. Just like lending out commercial debt and then paying an interest <laughs> right. to bearing account. I'm like, congrats, Celsius. You just reinvented 363 banking in Bitcoin. Like, yes, it actually works. And so the reason we don't have that now is because, again, as governments have become more and more sort of desperate to figure out ways to at least plausibly increase the amount of debt that they're holding, you know, those rates have to stay very, very low because otherwise the interest payments that's due on that debt becomes very high. And so this has kind of caused the entire industry and the entire concept of saving, you know, in a bank account to completely go away over the last 20 years. Is it more than 20 years? I don't know. It's been 20 years for me at this point since that was like a relevant path forward that you could even really consider. I don't think that people who have been born in the last 30 years really are even thinking about that as a path forward. And so speculation becomes almost mandatory if you want to try to do something. It was about 20 years ago when I got a certificate of deposit for six months that paid 5% interest. Yes. Yeah. You know, if you even think about it like this, it's not just a tax, it's intra-week loans. Basically, you have the poorest and most disenfranchised of us floating our paycheck for a week or two weeks in the bank account before it gets paid for paycheck to paycheck living. And it's functionally a reverse loan where you're paying them for free capital. It's crazy. It's structurally making it such that the bottom two thirds are just perpetually giving their wealth to the top third. Which is not crazy. It's crazy profitable if you think about it the right way. You're just thinking about it the wrong way. <laughs> you're thinking about it from the perspective of someone who is not a shareholder at a bank. Okay, so let's refocus on Bitcoin for a minute. Bitcoin's been around for more than 10 years at this point. Stephanie, I'd like to start with you for this one. How are we doing? Are we on track to make a difference? And kind of what's the normal curve of adoption for disruptive or revolutionary technologies besides Bitcoin? What do we hope to emulate? Oh, yeah, this has been talked about so much on the show. This is a very frequent topic for us. But I think that we can already see that, yes, Bitcoin is making a difference, has already made a difference. If you just compare right now to what the landscape looked like when we started the show, what was it, eight years ago or seven years ago plus? You know, things are very different as we talked about in the first half. Bitcoin is like a household name and cryptocurrency are a household name. But along with that comes the watering down of some of our favorite features of this technology. And that's inevitable and also has good and bad aspects to it, right? It has been compared a lot by us and by others to the AOL moment of the internet. Before that, the internet was a really cool place because you had to kind of know something to get on the internet. And there was this whole culture that was starting to be developed. But then when massive influxes of newbies came in with AOL and CompuServe and whoever else was sending out CD-ROMs in the mail to people who wanted to get online, using their phone, their landline, you know, with that came the influx of a lot of new people who didn't know that early culture. And so it made things different, but definitely more popular. And that was of benefit to even the early users in some ways. So I think Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are definitely in the midst of their AOL moment at this moment in time. And of course, it's made a difference. Yeah. And the price, I think, comes into play here as well. You know, one of the things that I said in, I think, the first year of doing the show, I think it might have even been in an article that is the most quoted thing I've ever said is something along the lines of the Bitcoin price acts as a beacon and it makes people who didn't pay attention or who dismissed it 
as the price goes up, they kind of start to turn and pay attention to it because clearly something is happening here. And sort of that price effect, we've seen it time and time again. The price goes up and it creates this interest that when the price goes back down to a higher high than it was before, but certainly lower than, for example, the 20,000 that we saw during the last set of highs, we're currently at less than half of that now. Well, the number of people who came in during that period, not all of them, but many of them have stayed. Many of them have fundamentally changed their perspective on this as a result of that. And I expect that this will continue to happen as the price goes up. We see new highs. It'll attract a new group of people who will come in and educate themselves at least about the opportunity and the appreciation that's happening, if not the underlying technology or philosophy behind it itself. It has definitely also made a difference for reasons that aren't really financial, I would say. You know, unfortunately, there's not as many examples of this as I would like, but there have definitely been folks who have used cryptocurrencies or, you know, uncensorable communications to speak their voice when they were censored or silenced before in many parts of the world. The thing that comes to mind for me is this story I read recently about a woman in China who was being like harassed at her college by a professor and nobody like believed her and she wanted to blog about it, but she couldn't because it would be censored. And she put it on like some Ethereum blockchain. And, you know, now there's a permanent record of that on the Internet. And because of that, she got attention. So there's at least a few stories like that that are really interesting. And this is a technology that enables that to occur. When we did this live show in Chicago a couple of years ago, there were some Venezuelan people who came to the show and they were saying that they wanted to show up and tell us their story because they were able to escape Venezuela and come to the U.S. like because of savings that they had had in Bitcoin. Right. There's the money side of it. And then there's sort of the technology side of it, right, which is needed for the money part, but which has all of these ancillary benefits and all of these ancillary opportunities that are then created by that. Right. Once you have a blockchain that can do money, you have a blockchain that can do ownership in general. And more than that, you have a blockchain that can do uncensorable or very difficult to censor communications if you can afford to put something into that blockchain. So it's about money, but it's about so much more than money. And once you have the money part, then a lot of other stuff becomes much, much easier. I also think that it is worth emphasizing that Bitcoin is a framework for achieving consensus. And consensus is a way for a bunch of people who may disagree on things to agree to a singular fact that they then execute. So imagine if Congress actually had bipartisan support to unilaterally pass a bill every 10 minutes. That's basically what's occurring in Bitcoin. It's this framework that, you know, there's nothing more political than money because money affects everything else. And yet Bitcoin works. And so I think that there's a lot of people looking at trying to reform the governance structures of the places that they're in. What they really should be doing is looking at things like Bitcoin and frameworks using blockchains to say, OK, how can we come to consensus over this governance issue or that governance issue of which money would be one? But I think the most transformative and phenomenal thing that it will do is Nakamoto consensus and then just blockchain governance writ large is a phenomenal way to have self-governance. And, you know, we see these breakdowns and these desires to federate, you know, cities and the way that decisions are made. And maybe rather than turning to a government based political solution, a community based solution using something like a blockchain would be a solution that would have a lot greater staying power and impact. Like you said, Adam, it's really important to have this conversation precisely because there are a lot of people who have come into the movement recently. And for us, it feels like we've been talking about this for years and we have. <laughs> but it's really important to bring people into the conversation who have 
their viewpoint to add to it as well. And I'm kind of curious to hear like feedback from people about what they think about this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And with that in mind, you can send us an email, you can send me an email, and I'll give it to everybody else. No matter what you do, don't send me an email. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't really want email either, but I want to hear it through Adam filtered. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Well, so that's a wrap on episode 439 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thank you very much for listening. And thanks to all the hosts for joining us today for this conversation. As I said, I think it's one of the important ones that we can have. If you're enjoying the show, please share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Today's episode was sponsored by eToro.com. Today's show featured Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, and myself, Adam B. Levine, with music by Gertie Beats, Straight from the Street. This episode was edited by Jonas. Stay tuned for our next episode on Bitcoin privacy tech with special guest Chris Belcher, which will be up next week at this same bad time, same bad place. Have a good one. Smash the like, share, comment, and subscribe. subscribe.